Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. It's a pleasure to welcome you to today's Beeson Podcast. This is one of the weeks when we listen to a lecture. And the lecturer on this podcast is Professor Elizabeth Newman. She is Professor of Theology and Ethics at the Baptist Theological Seminary at Richmond in Virginia. Uh, I've known uh, Elizabeth Newman um, for a long, long time. She was a student in my classes at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary um, longer ago than either of us would like to remember. A very bright, engaging student, and she's gone on to pursue the study of theology. She has a Ph.D. from Duke University. She's taught at several different schools, including St. Mary's College in Notre Dame. She's the author of some really remarkable books. One is called Untamed Hospitality, Welcoming God and Other Strangers. I recommend it to you strongly. And another book that is uh, really distinctive, Attending to the Wounds on Christ's Body, The Politics of Teresa's Ecclesial Vision. The Teresa she's talking about there is Teresa of Avila, who is recognized as one of the doctors in the Catholic Church. Elizabeth Newman, in this particular lecture, is speaking on practicing the Nicene faith. This was a part of a series we had here at Beeson called The Will to Believe and the Need for Creed. She's going to talk about the importance of the formation of creeds, how they are used and sometimes misused in the life of the church, and what we can learn today from the Nicene faith about how to live out the Christian life. Let's listen to Dr. Elizabeth Newman practicing the Nicene faith. Thank you so much. And I'm delighted to be here and to participate in this very stimulating conference. Um, I like, I think I've picked up, many of you have also said, come out of the uh, a tradition, the Baptist tradition, that was not one where we said the creed or any of the creeds in worship. And I had a professor in seminary when I was at Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Louisville Kentucky, that had the audacity to um, give you extra credit if you were able to write the Apostles' Creed on the final. And unfortunately, uh, Dr. George did not give me the full points that, uh, <laughs> because I didn't know it. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, that was uh, sort of one of my ex- first exposures to having supposedly memorized it. So, Okay. Uh, what language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow? thy pity without end. What language shall we borrow? These words from the the familiar hymn, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, suggest that human speech can never fully grasp our gratitude to God. The hymnist writes in a later verse, the joy can never be spoken when in thy body broken I thus with safety hide. If words cannot capture human gratitude, how much less can they convey fully the nature of God? As the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215 claimed, between the Creator and the creature, no similarity can be expressed without including a greater dissimilarity. God is greater than we can possibly imagine. God is more than we can fully say. This apophatic or negative theology, as it came to be known, protects the deep mystery that is God. And yet, if this were all we could say, we might well be left in silence. Karl Barth reminds us that God is incomprehensible, not in God's remoteness, but in God's nearness in Jesus Christ. What is most profoundly mysterious about God is that the word has become flesh. This divine mystery, then, is not a door slammed shut, but a depth so great that we can never fully exhaust it. The Nicene Creed is the church's acknowledgement that it lives on borrowed language. What words ought the church to use to worship and speak of God faithfully? Is the one Lord Jesus Christ begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father? Or, as Arius famously argued, is Jesus a perfect creature, 
created by God before the beginning of time. What language shall we borrow? The philosopher Wittgenstein uses the phrase language game to describe how language gives rise to a form of life. The word game in this sense is not trivial, as in one is just playing around, but serious, as in how we are to live and order our lives. As Stanley Hauerwas puts it, you can only live in the world you can see, and you can only see the world you have learned to say. Our words can open up or shut down how we see and therefore how we live in the world. In this sense, our words are deeds. The familiar Hebrew word dabar, which can mean both word and deed, reflects this reality. God's dabar makes a world appear. As the psalmist writes, by the word of the mouth were the heavens made, and all their host by the breath of his mouth. In human speech, our covenantal words are also deeds, as witness in the performance of marriage vows or the declaration at baptism. To ask, then, what language shall we borrow is also to ask, what life shall we live? In our context today, we face numerous challenges to borrowing the language of the Nicene Creed. In what follows, in the first part of my talk, I want to examine three of these challenges that I've placed in opposition to one another, or at least uh, in tension to one another. The first is freedom versus creedalism. The second is the simplicity of the good news versus an understanding of creeds as a kind of add-on or accretion or baggage. And the third is an emphasis on deeds as more important than creeds. Okay, so the first, freedom versus creedalism. Years ago, when I began teaching Christian ethics to undergraduates, always a treacherous thing to try to do, uh, a familiar question that often hovered in the air for their perspective was, who am I to judge? I think while they were no doubt trying to avoid a kind of judgmentalism, um, on one particular stunning occasion, a student followed this question to its logical conclusion when she said, who's to say whether Hitler is right or wrong? Or we could you know, fill in any sort of obvious bad thing. My student had absorbed, like most of us, to some degree, a dominant language of our American culture in which words like value and religion have easily become commodified. Alistair McIntyre describes this conviction as emotivism, from emotion, emotivism, the doctrine that all evaluative judgments are nothing but expressions of preference, expressions of attitude or feeling. Therefore, personal values, personal spirituality, or my own personal theology, as my own students sometimes say, all reflect emotivist convictions. Steve Long, has written, a, uh, who's an ethicist, has written an essay uh, entitled God is Not Nice. And he says in there the language of personal savior is even now often used to portray Jesus as a nice guy who's there to meet my needs, sort of like having your own personal tailor. Our dominant culture is immersed in the language of choice. One might well argue that choice itself has become the good so that we have freedom to choose to be who we want to be. Any child can be president of the United States, we're told in grammar school. To live in a culture of choice is to define freedom then in terms of our ability to choose. We are free to the extent that we can choose our own values, our own way of life, and even our own creeds. From this perspective, the Nicene Creed seems like an imposition. And we might well ask, shouldn't we be free to choose? Is it right to impose our beliefs or values on others? The use of freedom and belief forms the background for those today, Christians and others, who equate the saying of creeds with the loss of individual freedom. The creed contradicts what one theologian has called the voluntary principle in religion. According to him, the voluntary principle refers to an emphasis on the individual will and the Holy Spirit acting upon the will 
In contrast, he says, to corporatism and the Holy Spirit effecting obedience through the corporate will. Some of us might resonate with this language of the Holy Spirit speaking to the individual and with the desire not to impose or coerce belief. Institutions of higher education, for uh, for example, routinely say, we're not here to indoctrinate students. Certainly, at the heart of the gospel is a savior who does not use force or violence to make others follow him. In the familiar parable of the rich young ruler, for example, Jesus allows the young man to walk away. Though, as Mark's gospel poignantly states, looking upon him, he loved him. The word imposed, however, begs for closer examination. For example, when we tell ourselves we are not indoctrinating students or others, but allowing them to choose or make up their own minds, we are, in fact, indoctrinating them into a way of life. As one critic notes, students and others easily come to believe that choosing between ideas is like choosing between an iPod or a cell phone. Or actually, this is the older quote. He said, choosing between a Sony or a Panasonic. <laughs> it's a dated. Um, but he goes on. It never occurs that the very idea that one should choose is itself imposed, unquote. The language of choice, then, is not neutral, but itself borrowed from the prevailing ethos of a market society and from a politics focused on the individual and his or her rights. The belief that identity is self-generated is itself a creed albeit often an invisible one, that initiates its inherence into a way of life subject to the dominant, and economic, um, the dominant economic and political forces. In this creed, choice itself is taken to be revelatory of identity rather than being revelatory of character, which involves virtues and vices and which is itself rooted in a larger common story. So I'm contrasting the language of identity with the language of character. Um, And within a Christian context, character is formed by a common story, one that acknowledges we do not choose God. Rather, God, in and through Christ, chooses us. Creation itself, in fact, names a relation between God and all that is not God. Of course, this way of speaking about the creed will not allay the anxiety of some. As one uh, theologian historian has recently said about his own denomination, they forget the very principles that birth and nurture them. They move from freedom to fear. They get dangerous because they move from being Christ-centered to being creed-centered. They move from freedom for the individual to fear of the individual. On this view, creeds are thus instruments used by those who fear the freedom of others. And I think there is no question that creeds, the ancient as well as modern ones, have been and can be used in manipulative ways. So I think think that is true. That has happened. In my own opinion, the creed, no creed but the Bible, which a number of People in this room even have made the observation that that itself is a kind of creed, no creed by the Bible, has been used manipulatively to undercut the task of theology and the gift of dogma. And thinking through freedom itself, however, I find Isaiah Berlin's famous distinction between negative and positive freedom illuminative. Negative freedom is the absence of restraint. For example... I am free from having to work long hours. Especially when my husband does all the cooking. (laughs) Okay, by contrast, though, positive freedom is the ability to achieve some good purpose. Uh, An example of this would be the mother is free to go to her daughter's choral performance. Positive freedom is tied to purpose. Theologian Philip Thompson describes divine freedom in a way analogous to this twofold freedom, or this twofold pattern, when he writes, quote, First, God is free from any sort of control by creation in God's work of redemption. Second, however, God is free for using creation in the same work of redemption. And Thompson is 
discussing this understanding of freedom in the context of sacramental theology. If we allow this twofold pattern, if we follow it, human freedom from a Christian perspective relates ultimately to fulfilling a purpose, a purpose that we do not choose. As I learned from a childhood Presbyterian friend, which I'm sure will be familiar to many of you in this room, the response of the first question in the Westminster Catechism, what is the chief end of man? The response to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The Nicene Creed also describes this given end, which is communion with the triune God. Understood in this light, the opposite of freedom is not being creed-centered, but rather failing to receive the abundance that God gives to us in Christ through the Spirit, both for communion with God and for the unity of the church. Okay, the second language borrowed that inhibits use of the creed or reference to the creeds as baggage. Some have borrowed the language of baggage to describe the ancient creeds. From this perspective, the creeds are historical accretions or layers that have been placed over Scripture, obscuring the purity of the Word of God. An analogy would be like a great piece of art discovered under a modern church. The original must be recovered by careful cleansing and labor in order to see its true beauty. I came across the word baggage in the title of a lecture given by William Lewis Poteet, president of White Forest University from 1905 to 1925. Poteet, who came from an outstanding and amazing Baptist family in uh, the Carolinas, what, this Poteet was a charming man by all accounts, a committed Christian and someone who cared deeply about both the church and the university. But Poteet got into trouble with North Carolina Baptist because he was an evolutionist. In response to his critics, Poteet delivered the McNair Lectures at Chapel Hill under the title, Can a Man Be a Christian Today? In his first lecture, he described the essence of religion as, quote, the soul's apprehension of the spirit world, unquote. In Christianity, this is a world mediated by Christ. Poteet's focus on the soul's apprehension of the spiritual realm prepared the ground for a second lecture entitled simply, Baggage, in this lecture, he counseled his audience to look beyond the theorizing of theology, which we can assume would also include a dogma and creed, and to find inspiration in the direct teachings of Jesus. Baggage referred to all that got in the way of the inward experience of Christ's call to the man's soul and to the teachings of Christ. Um, with evolution obviously in his mind, Poteet was worried about the requirement that one might have to believe certain propositions or biblical interpretations to be considered a Christian. Poteet would have agreed with his later successor at, uh, as president of Wake Forest, Thomas Hearn, who served from 1982 to 2005, who said in his 10-year presidential report, quote, each person is spiritually competent before God without the guidance of any ecclesiastical organization or creed, unquote. While we might sympathize with Poteet's struggle to reconcile science and theology in his day, we can hear in his language echoes of Enlightenment speech. The word enlightened itself marked a shift in the way one thought about the past. Right? Light, dark. <laughs> so words like dogma and creed took on negative connotations. Kant famously summarized the meaning of enlightenment when he wrote, Enlightenment is man's re release from his self-incurred tutelage. Tutelage is man's inability to make use of his understanding without direction from another. Have courage to use your own reason. That was the motto that he put forth. Unquote. From this perspective, dogma stifles thinking and creeds become a way of avoiding true thought. In light of this, one would even think that scripture itself would fall into the category of unenlightened dogma or myth. And, as we know too well, to some extent, this in fact happened. Poteet, for example, saw scripture as a moral guidebook and an inspiration for the spiritual self, but not as a description of how things are. Scripture with, uh, easily became either, quote, an, uh, either an inspired supernatural guide for individual conduct or a piece of detached historical record. What Rowan Williams called the typical exaggerations of biblicist and literal, uh, uh, I'm sorry, biblicist and liberal approaches, respectively. 
Both of these are present in Poteet's thinking. Scripture as supernatural guide in the spiritual realm, in the natural realm as objective historical document. As committed and faithful as Poteet, President Poteet no doubt was, this kind of vision that he held forth for Wake Forest that separated the spiritual realm from the material realm was simply unable to sustain the Baptist identity of the institution in any sort of vibrant intellectual way. Once faith becomes reduced to the realm of the individual subject before scripture, it becomes difficult, if not impossible, to give a coherent account of why or how faith pertains to all of reality. In its own realm, faith can have at best only an indirect relation to politics, economics, or the material world. We might ask, though, in terms of the word baggage, isn't the individual reading the biblical text for him or herself what the reformers sought to initiate with sola scriptura? And our fine presentation address this. And I will refer to also uh, Daniel Williams, who argues that in the, in the polemical context of post-Reformation uh, thought, sola scriptura became distorted, more a, uh, a principle of negation. All else was unnecessary or disallowed in the construction of saving faith. So it's a principle of negation. It took out only the first three, freedom from, but there was no freedom for what? For the earlier reformers, however, sola scriptura was an affirmation of scriptural authority within the church. From this perspective, the ancient creeds enhanced scripture because they provided a faithful and coherent lens through which to receive and be formed by the word of God. And the final borrowed language I'll engage is the emphasis on deeds rather than creeds. Creeds can be divisive. The Nicene Creed was born out of heated and drawn-out debates. The word debate even seems too mild. So much was at stake. How could this not be much more? A contest, a battle, a drawing of lines. Deeds, not creeds, has become a familiar way to recommend uniting around action rather than arguing over beliefs. One stream of the ecumenical movement shared this popular sentiment in the 1930s when it claimed doctrine divides service unites. And Pelican in his massive volume, Credo, cites long, uh, a verse by Longfellow who's writing about a Cambridge theologian who preaches, quote, the gospel of the golden rule, the new commandment given to men, thinking the deed and not the creed would help us in our utmost need. You know, so the assumption, if we just all followed the golden rule and put our personal beliefs and squabbles aside, the world would be a better place. There is some truth to this position. If the gospel becomes reduced to belief alone, then it contradicts one of the gospel's own claims. As we read in James, so faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Even more to the point, James states, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Pa passages like this seem to indicate that faith alone or creed alone are insufficient for our life in Christ. Deeds are necessary. Or as one uh, friend of mine who's a uh, Methodist pastor reflecting on the state of the Methodist church today said, for years we preached to our people that they should be out in the world, not in the sanctuary. And they have finally believed us. So, okay. <laughs> okay. And yet, in the final analysis, deeds and creeds cannot be separated. The question left unaddressed in this formula is which deeds? Jesus' parable of the talents is instructive on this point. The servants receiving five and two talents use theirs to make more, while the servant with one talent buries it in the ground. When asked why, he responds. I knew you were a harsh master. I was afraid. He had obviously performed a deed, but the point of the parable is that it was not a good one. In this case, it is not simply that the servant needs to do more deeds. It's rather deeper down that his very understanding of the master is in disrepair. The language or creed he uses to describe the master has diminished his own life. Fear of the master shapes his deed. 
rather than gratitude to the master's generosity. The repair, then, is not to do away with creed, but rather for him to acquire a richer, more truthful account of the master and consequently of his own life. Such an account will always be, in a sense, divisive. Unity is not simply the absence of conflict, as in the background assumption of Rodney King's famous question after the L.A. riots, why can't we all just get along? Such a question in a Christian context easily masks how our dominant politics, rather on the, either on the re, uh, whether on the right or the left, or the dominant politics, upper class or middle class, and of course racial divisions, often become more decisive for unity amongst Christians than the unity of the church. Practicing the Nicene Creed, however, witnesses to a uni- unity more universal than nation, race, or class. Now I'd like to turn to, more positively, practicing the Nicene Creed in worship. Yarsam Pelikoff states that the creed is not in the first instance in the business of the professional or learned theological elite. It is meant to be prayed, as has been emphasized, right along with the Lord's Prayer, with adoration and worship. Not only, uh, neither is saying the creed like reading an instruction manual that you sort of plug in and you get a certain product. The ancient creeds are more like ways of speaking and seeing doxologically. What must the church say and do and therefore see to worship God faithfully? As has often observed today, um, in this day of church shopping, it's difficult sometimes to know what to make of worship. We want people to come to our churches, so shouldn't we make worship more appealing, try to meet their spiritual needs, and try to give them an authentic worship experience? My husband pastors a small rural church in Hanover County, Virginia, and recently we had a visitor give us training on how to be welcoming and hospitable. In addition to giving our guests something, like a mug or a loaf of bread, he emphasized that we should greet visitors at the door with a friendly face and then offer to sit with them. Such welcome can be very good. But there was little reflection on what exactly we were welcoming people into other than a friendly place where we tried to be nice. According to James Torrance, the most common view of worship today is is that it is something that we religious people do mainly in church on Sunday. Quote, we go to church, we sing psalms and hymns to God, we intercede for the world, we listen to the sermon, we offer our money, time, and talents to God. Um, I'll add, insert here, if we have a hospitality trainer, we try to be nice to people. (laughs) And we think we need God's grace to do this. But we worship because that's something that Jesus taught and left left us an example of uh, how to do this. Torrance, though, and some of you might be familiar with his argument, describes this understanding of worship as Unitarian because worship is about what we do before God. The agent of worship, the one who makes worship happen, is the self. So the worshiper, then, has to generate certain feelings, experience, thoughts, and so forth for worship to be real. By contrast, to practice Trinitarian and Nicene worship is to see that we do not have to make worship happen. This does not mean that Christians worship the Trinity in the sense that they stand far off and gawk reverently at a safe distance. Rather, it is to acknowledge that there is a communion or a worship already going on in the life of God. From this perspective, the Spirit enables those whom the Spirit has gathered to share in the Son's communion with the Father. As Jeffrey Wainwright summarizes, the classical movement of Christian worship has always meant a participatory entrance into Christ, self-offering to the Father, and correlatively being filled with divine life. Christ, who holds his priesthood permanently, as Hebrews states, and therefore is able for all time to save those who approach God through him, um, always lives 
to make intercession for them. So the author of Hebrews emphasizes that Christ is interceding always before the Father, which means that we do not create worship. Rather, through the gift of the Spirit, we share in the communion of the Holy Trinity. As Eugene Rogers, who's recently written a book on the Holy Spirit, says, the movement from the human creature up to God is no independent human movement, but belongs within the movement from God to God, by which the Spirit adds a new song to the love between the Father and the Son. Unquote. To illustrate the difference between Unitarian and Trinitarian worship, Torrance tells an example, or gives a, tells a story about an elderly gentleman he once wrote who had, uh, was walking along a beach and his wife of 45 years was dying. And the man came, whose father was a Presbyterian minister, he grew up in the church but had drifted far away, and said to Torrance, especially upon discovering who Torrance was, I cannot pray. I don't know what to say to God. And Torrance says, you know, well, did I tell him how to pray? Did I try to throw it back on himself? And he goes, no. I said to him, can I tell you what I think your father would have said to you? In Jesus Christ, we have someone who knows all about this. He has been through it, suffering, death, and separation, and he will carry both of you into resurrection life. You've been walking up and down this beach, not knowing how to pray. In Jesus, we have someone who is praying for you. He has heard your groans and is interceding for you, with you, and in you. Unquote. Torrance directs the man away from the notion that prayer or worship is primarily something that he does or fails to do in this instance. To pray, rather, is to recognize that none of us knows how to pray as we ought to. But we bring our desires to God. We find that we have someone who is praying already for us, with us, and in us. Jesus takes our prayers, feeble and inarticulate though they might be, and makes them his prayers and presents them to the Father as his adopted children crying, Abba, Father. So Romans 8. Unitarian worship can easily engender a kind of weariness. I can think of no heavier baggage, to use that word again when it comes to worship, than having to have certain feelings, experiences, or even thoughts in order for worship to really happen. When one sits beside young children, for example, distraction is almost inevitable, as also are unpleasant thoughts, at least in my case. <laughs> I'm going to kill that child when I get up. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, and you know, as we know, there are folks who come to our, our services who, uh, I mean, we had a gentleman that came for years, he since died, who couldn't hear, hardly hear, never could hear the sermon. I mean, so what does it mean for him have to have to have certain thoughts? Or we have people who have mental disabilities or mental illnesses for whom it's very difficult to have certain kinds of feelings or experiences in worship. For all of us, our thoughts and our experiences will fluctuate dependent upon personal circumstances. To try to worship then from this perspective is ironically to make worship more about us than about God. By contrast, Trinitarian worship draws worshipers into a world of gift. When we say in the context of worship we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, and in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We are doing so not as individuals, but as the body of Christ. A familiar prayer across Christian traditions states, Lord Jesus Christ, regard not our sins, but the faith of your church. Or it's also sometimes said at funerals as well and personalized, regard not his sins, but the faith of your church. The implication is that we are bound up with a people, a communion much larger than ourselves, whose faith is greater than our personal inadequacies, struggles, and doubts. To confess this faith is to join the grand communion of saints, such as we sang this morning, Holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. This means that even if a person is distracted or feeling bad, Worship is still taking place in the universal body of Christ, and Christ through the Spirit still unites our offering, humble though it may be, to his own. As Teresa of Avila in the 16th century tells her fellow Carmelite sisters 
who are worried that they don't have much to offer Christ, says to them, the Son takes whatever we can offer and unites it with his offering to the Father so that it may have the value won for it by our will, even though our actions in themselves may seem trivial. End quote. The dynamism of Christian worship comes from our learning to receive God's grace through word and sacrament and participate in God's own dynamic giving and receiving on behalf of the world. In this cosmic liturgical context, the creed is not mere words or blind ritual, but itself a deed whereby we join in the unity of the body of Christ. This is not to deny that faith is personal and self-involving. Christian faith includes both the faith which one believes and the faith with which one believes, which is the sort of more objective knowledge assent con, uh, aspect, pole, and then the pole of personal trust. Both aspects of faith call for training and practice. Faith is always a gift, but one nevertheless that we learn over time how to live and uh, how to receive and live into, often through blood, sweat, and tears. I've always loved Mother Teresa's point on this, her words on this, when she says, teach your children to pray, light of our last question that we got in the former session. If you don't, it will be difficult for the children to become holy. When we say the Apostles' Creed, my nine-year-old son thinks that the word quick in he shall come to judge the quick and the dead refers, you can probably guess, to people who can run fast. <laughs> and I haven't disabused him of this because he loves to run, and it's his way of identifying. Over time, though, we learn. So learning to pray and confess also involves us in learning certain postures, bowed head, closed eyes, standing with others whom we might not have necessarily chosen to be with. As Mother Teresa so beautifully embodied in her own life, liturgical training itself over time becomes a way of life where we are vulnerable to Christ even in places where we least expect to find him. Okay, the final segment of my talk is practicing the Nicene faith as an ecclesial way of life. In reflecting on the creed, Catholic theologian Susan Wood says, quote, the church is not simply the place of our baptism. We are, bapt we are baptized not simply in the church, but into the church. This is much more than church membership or a matter of confessional identity. It is an ecclesial way of being in the world, unquote. Confessing the Nicene Creed is part of an ecclesial way of life. Yet in our context today, practicing the Nicene faith across the landscape of our lives can be difficult. What does the creed have to do with our jobs, the daily grind of various routines, our families, the way we make or spend money? the political and economical divisions and challenges facing our country. McIndyre states that compartmentalization has so fragmented our lives that adaptability is now the new virtue and inflexibility the new vice. To adapt is to compete in the global market. McDonald's, for example, has served the same chicken McNuggets, unfortunately, <laughs> to my children for years. But at the same time, McDonald's must engage in a never-ending process of trying to produce novelty, changing the size and the sauces, the toys, of its product to give at least the appearance of something new to attract the consumer. My husband and I once saw a church marquee announcing worship just got better, as if all that had come before was no longer um, uh, relevant or, or no longer good. In this context, practicing the Nicene faith is a subversive activity because the dominant virtue of the Christian faith is not adaptability, but the virtues of faith, hope, and love. It seems poor stewardship, however, to ignore the reality of economics. We must compete in the world to survive. Ray Kroc, who, a man who made McDonald's a worldwide sensation, summed up this economic logic when asked about his own business philosophy he dismissed any sort of sophisticated analysis and said, this is a ratty, rat, dog-eat-dog -dog world. I'm going to kill them, and I'll kill them before they kill me. We're talking about the American way of survival of the fittest, unquote. That's quoted in Fast Food Nation, by the way, which is a great book. 
But anyway, okay, the bluntly stated, something like this economics seems necessary for the American way of life. We have to compete. Wittgenstein describes a limited way of seeing from which we are unable to extricate ourselves as, quote, the hardness of the logical must. The imagination is so locked into a particular logic that one is simply unable to see other possibilities. And a political uh, theologian has related this to the life of the church, Michael Buddy, who says, so many of us come from churches deeply accommodated to secular power, the so-called Constantinian Compromise, that we seem to have lost a sense of how substantial Christian identities and convictions could be formed without the support of the dominant culture, unquote. The, famil- the failure to imagine things differently will make it almost inevitable that a dominant politics and economics will determine our lives. The Nicene Creed, however, describes, and let's look at economics first, a different economic logic. The word economics, like the word ecology and ecumenical, is rooted in the Greek word oikos, which means dwelling or household, and signifies more broadly the management of the household for the well-being of all. The dwelling that the creed describes is not the competitive market, but the non-competitive triune communion of God. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeds. God is not three competitive parts, nor does divine giving diminish the life of God. This triune economy freely creates the world, Israel, and the church as pure gift. To be adopted into this divine economics, we do not have to compete. God graciously and abundantly gives each of us uniquely and the church abundantly what it needs to be faithful. According to Athanasius, Christ came, quote, to put himself at the disposal of those who needed him and to be manifested according as they could bear it. Not, I've always loved this line, not vitiating the value of the divine appearing by exceeding their capacity to receive it. So God comes in a way that we can receive God. That's part of God's abundance. The divine economics, however, seems difficult to square with the church today. Ephraim Rodner rightly points to the fact that churches exist in close proximity, even side by side to each other, and this no longer registers as a concern on most radars. Ecclesial division and competition seems almost normal. We are trained to compete at a very young age. Schools of all ages now routinely describe the goal of education as making students competitive for the global market. In this context, practicing the Nicene faith calls for attending more closely to the practices that constitute the life of the church. This is slow and patient work, like nurturing a tiny green shoot in an overgrown garden. One waters and feeds the plants, but one also waits and watches. Sabbath-keeping is a way that the church both waters and waits. There is a Jewish saying, more than the Jews keep the Sabbath, the Sabbath keeps the Jews. Abraham Heschel describes the Sabbath famously in his book as a palace in time because he says Judaism is a religion of time, aiming at the sanctification of all time. By contrast, the global market depends upon every day being just like every other. All days are interchangeable. Nicholas Boyle describes this timelessness as follows in the unsleeping fluorescent glow of round-the-clock commerce. Consumption is as instantaneous as the signature on the contract of sale, the electronic transfer of funds. Individual consumption using up, understood as using up, defines market time. Sabbath time involves consumption as well, but a very different kind of consuming. Alexander Schmemann, in his book, For the Life of the World, begins uh, citing Feuerbach, man is what he eats. And Feuerbach used this to support a purely natural uh, sort of materialist philosophy. This is uh, the natural world is all we are. 
But Shmaiman takes this and applies it to the Eucharist. What we, we are what we eat in partaking of the body and blood of Christ. Augustine even more describes how the Lord's Supper reverses the normal pattern of consumption. Others dige- other food is digested by Christian believers, but the Eucharist as a heavenly food digests its own communicants, making them immortal and giving them a share in resurrection life. This is not simply an otherworldly or spiritual reality. Jesus' sacrifice at the altar is not only his death, but also his resurrected life, a bodily presence that is no longer bound up with the limitations of time and space. Because of this, Jesus is fully present at the Eucharist. He is never exhausted. Eucharistic consumption does not need to be competitive. Okay, we still, of course, live in a world of limited means. Um, But the limits can now be negotiated through an economics of love. An economics of love might sound simple and idealistic, but I actually got this phrase from a a pastor, Michael Bowling, who um, is the pastor of Inglewood Christian Church in Indianapolis. And uh, he just used it sort of off the cuff when people were asking him about his church's ministry. And one of the things he said about the way that his church sought to embody economics was that it is not based on getting rich people to give money, but on envisioning the kingdom of God in the concrete place where you are. For Inglewood, this has meant remaining in their declining, quote-unquote, neighborhood after many moved away, befriending their neighbors, helping them become homeowners, and creating local businesses in which they could share. Um, and really doing, and they, and they themselves, many of the, the ministers and many of the church themselves rem, have remained in the neighborhood as well. It's a really astounding, uh, astounding church. But all of it flows out of their liturgical, Eucharistic life together, where they are simul- simultaneously fed by the body of Christ and become food for others. Finally, if the Nicene Creed describes an alternative economics, it also involves a unique politics. Historical sources often note that the creed developed in a politicized context. Constantine wanted to shore up his imperial power through a common statement that would unite all Christians. Yet the creed itself relies upon a very different politics than the politics of empire or nation. This is not the politics of statecraft, which is what most of us think when we think what it means to be political, is to involve oneself in the politics of the nation through voting, lobbying, or running for office. The politics of the body of Christ is not about guaranteeing security while maximizing individual liberty, which is the political good of most liberal democracies, a politics that was advocated early on by John Locke. And Locke thought of the church as a voluntary association of individuals. Here's a quote that I think captures his politics. The church's distinct realm concerns divine salvation and is characterized as private, otherworldly, and inward. The state, by contrast, deals with civil interest, life, liberty, health, and indelicity of body and the possession of outward things, such as money, lands, houses, furniture, and the like. Locke's politics, it is crucial to see, places the church in a private spiritual realm, thus compromising the visibility of the body of Christ. For Locke, toleration became the true mark of the church rather than one holy Catholic and apostolic. It is not coincidental today that the politics of the nation is often more determinative in the lives of believers in the politics of the body of Christ. And so divisions within denominations tend to replicate the divisions within our national politics, Republicans, Democrats. The The politics produced by the Nicene faith, however, is not interest politics, but it is ordering our lives around a common good. Understood theologically, this is ordering of human relationships according to their ultimate good, who is God. The true polis for Christians 
is constituted by the practices of assembled Christians called the church, the pilgrim city of God. The politics of this pilgrim people makes the church more rather than less vulnerable to the world. This past summer, my family and I had the opportunity to go to Rome where we got to visit uh, the church of St. Cecilia, who is a third century martyr known as the patron saint of musicians because she was apparently singing while, even while she was dying. There's a wonderful statue of St. Cecilia from the 16th century of her lying on the ground, beautifully draped in a robe. Her head is turned away from the viewer, but you can see a cut across her neck. And she almost appears to be sleeping, but the artist vividly illustrates the reason for her martyrdom. Three outstretched fingers, going like that while she's lying there, displaying her belief in the Trinity even when she could no longer speak. Cecilia's story sounds morbid, or in any case, far removed from our time and place, but she both sustained and witnessed to the triune faith of a church and thus to a, a politics that surpasses the politics of empire or nation-state. Confessing the creed makes possible this kind of faithful politics. For most of us, such faithful politics will probably not involve a martyrdom like Cecilia's. If you're like me, you certainly hope not. <laughs> Though we cannot know for sure where daily acts of faithfulness will lead. To cite again Teresa of Avila, who is responding to her sisters again saying, you know, we, are, we can't teach or preach like the apostles. A modern version of this might be, you know, we're not saints. We can't change society. But Teresa's reply is, instead of setting our hand to the work which lies nearest to us and thus serving our Lord in ways within our power, we think we can rest content with having desired the impossible. The politics that Teresa points to is not a system, a party, or something that other people do. It is rather a community living in friendship with God, willing to live a cruciform life in response to God's love. The politics of God's kingdom, in this, it doesn't matter if a person does great things. This politics does not require heroes, much less warriors. It rather requires a willingness to do the small thing that lies in front of us, but with great love. Such politics is grounded finally not in human effort, but in the divine king who heals not through violence, but through the cross. From this perspective, the Nicene Creed is a thoroughly political statement. Our calling is to have the courage to participate daily in God's triune communion, both for the sake of the oneness of the church and also for the world. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast. <laughs>